Welcome to Sober Solutions. We are a weekly recovery podcast, not affiliated with any particular 12-step or recovery program. However, you may hear us mention them. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Ben. I'm an alcoholic and addict. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 19. And tonight we're going to be talking about long-term recovery. And we have a very special guest with us tonight, Pat McTee from NYC. And Pat, it's so good to see you. It's great to have you on the show. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, Okay, I guess the standard way I do it, I guess I'm Pat, I'm an alcoholic, and it's good to be sober. It's a privilege to be here, and thank you for giving me a chance to share my experience, strength, and hope. Uh, I drank too much too often and too often too much, and I drank when I wanted to drink, and then I drank when I didn't, when I thought I wanted to drink, and in the end, I drank when I did not want to drink anymore. I'm born and raised in the Hell's Kitchen section of uh, New York City. I'm the eighth of nine Irish Catholic. 11 of us living in a three small bedroom railroad apartment. Uh, We were poor, it's needless to say, but I never felt poor. I felt loved and accepted and I grew up, I fit in, I belonged. I was a joiner, I played sports, Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school. I started drinking somewhere in high school and it was fairly tame and innocent, kind of weekend thing. And uh, I dated girls and I always had this thing about guys, and uh, but back in the 50s and 60s in a place like Hell's Kitchen, you don't go around expressing doubts about your sexuality. It's just a good way to get your ass kicked. So uh, I didn't know anything about sex. Whatever I knew about sex, I learned in the streets. In November 1965, I went to the Marine Corps. I landed in Paris Island boot camp, and the second day there, I found myself in a shower with 40 other Marines, and I had a spiritual awakening. And uh, uh, I said, oh, well, that's, I guess that's, this is probably not a flirtation. So uh, that was kind of new then. In, in June of 66, I landed in Vietnam. In June of 67, I came home. The drinking took off from June of 67 to June of 81. Uh, I always thought it was related to uh, being gay and closeted, and uh, I never saw that a good part of it actually was Vietnam. I was a Marine. I was already up north in a place called Dang Ha in Quang Tri province, and I stepped over a lot of bodies and body parts, and I had a desk job, but like I said, I was all the way up north, and uh, um, I saw a lot of shit go down, and I never dealt with it, but when I came back from Vietnam when the drinking took off, it allowed me to begin to act out sexually with the men. Like I couldn't have done it without alcohol, really. Uh, um, and I began to live this double life and I was in the Hell's Kitchen bars in the early part of the night. And then uh, later on, I'd be in uh, Greenwich Village of bathhouses and all kinds of private uh, uh, sex areas for gay people. And uh, I, I really grew to friggin' hate myself. I just couldn't stand, I was just living this lie. And uh, uh, I became suicidal. I spent days fantasizing about ways to kill myself. I would go up in the tenement of my building and I'd be so drunk. I don't know how I didn't fall over sometimes. 
I'd rock back and forth on my heels, trying to get up enough nerve to roll over onto the roof and uh, off of the roof. And uh, I stood on street corners and waited for buses to come along, like trucks. And I was never going to just take pills and go quietly. I was like pissed off. I felt like nobody knew I was alive, but they're going to know when I'm dead because I'm going to splatter myself all over the avenue. Uh, and I don't know why I never did directly attempt it, but uh, I was just living this this lie and progressively winding down. About four and a half years before I got sober, I met a girl in a bar. I would date girls from time to time. Uh, we started having sex and we got pregnant. So I used to lay in bed at night and beg myself to... Uh, they forgot to just take me out of here. I can't do this shit anymore. And when that happened, I thought, this is it. This is God's will. I'll get married. I'll live as a straight man. Things will change. And I was right. They changed. They got worse. They always got worse. They always got worse because I kept freaking drinking. That was the part I didn't get. Heather was born in October 79. Sean was born in March, uh, in March of... Uh, Heather was born in, in October 77. And Sean was born in March of 79. And... Um, it was just getting worse. The last two years of my drinking, I did not want to drink at all. I, I got nothing out of it. I was, I would get drunk and high and we get drunk and I would get drunk and pass out and wake up and get drunk and pass out and wake up. And uh, I was bleeding out of both ends of my body on a regular basis. I was having auditory hallucinations. I was paranoid and terrified. Uh, there was no more high up buzz. I was just going from hungover to drunk. I didn't want to drink anymore and I couldn't stop. Uh, about two weeks before I came into AA, I was living in Woodside. I had a wife and two kids. I had gotten off the subway about six o'clock and it was amazing. I hadn't drank yet that day because I used to drink at work all the time on Wall Street. You could do that back then. And I had the shakes, I had the sweats, I had the runs. And I went in the bar and I still found myself walking in the bar. I said, I don't, you know, I just want to go home. And I still found myself walking in the bar and sitting down and ordering a shot and a beer. I used to curse at myself in the mirror at the bar. You're, you're nuts. You're insane. You don't want to do this anymore. Get up and go home. And when that shot and the beer was done, I ordered another one. I, I was a maintenance drunk. I drank because I had a habit in my system. Uh, June 13th of 81, I don't know what happened, why I did. I, my brother never said a word to me. He was sober like four and a half years when I got sober. But in the old days, you never, you used to say you got to let the apple fall from the tree. So he never preached to me. And I saw how happy he was and how his sense of humor had come back. And that, that was like the seed for me. But he never said a word. I didn't know what AA was like or what it was, you know, what happened when you went there. I called the AA answering service in New York City. Uh, they told me somebody from AA was going to call me back. I had two bottles of beer left in the refrigerator. I drank those two bottles of beer. A guy named Jim from the Woodside Group called me back. And from that day until then, to then till now, I have not had a drink again. And that was the day I stopped doing it alone. I always tell my sponsees, stopping drinking was easy. I, I did it before I came to AA. I did it a dozen times. One time I stopped drinking twice in one day. I mean, it's not brain surgery. You just stop drinking. But the other end of that, tail is what AA is talking about, about staying sober. That just kept sailing over my head all those years. I didn't know how to stay sober because I didn't have a system to support me. I walked into a Woodside 
uh, Woodside, Woodside Wisdom Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was, uh, I walked in off the street. I didn't know what to expect. I sat down at this rectangular table with 12 people. They, uh, 12, 14 people. It's going around the table. I was the last one to sit down and uh, going around the table and they wrote, there was a 12-step meeting and they're talking about having a spiritual awakening and carrying the message and practicing these principles. I was a panic attack. The hell are you talking about? I just drink too much, you know, and it got to me, and I used to say there's no soul saved after the first 60 minutes, and meetings would end in the hour, and it was 7 o'clock, and I said, I think I might possibly be an alcoholic, and went back around the table. Everyone in there, they let the meeting run over. They didn't care about that 60-minute thing. They let the meeting run over, and everybody at that table 12 stepped me that day, and I have been sober ever since. Uh, I have always gone to meetings. Uh, I have almost always had a home group. I had one period of time in the 90s where I took the wife and three kids. We went to Disney World for 10 days, and uh, I didn't go to a meeting for 10 days. By the end of the 10 days, I wanted to rip Mickey's heart right out of his chest. I was like clinically insane. Uh, my wife said, next time we go on, next time we go on vacation, if you don't have your meeting set up ahead of time, you aren't friggin' going with us because you're a miserable bastard. So, uh, I go to meetings. I always, I've always gone to meetings. And uh, uh, I learned about home group. Uh, I got sober in June, like I said. And from June to October, I was always Wednesdays and Sundays was a Woodside Wisdom Group. And uh, so one Sunday in October, I decided to stay home and watch the World Series. And uh, I showed up the following Wednesday, and this little woman, Ray, who had gotten sober, just before they invented dirt, she uh, she came up to me and she said, uh, we missed you on Sunday. Where were you, Pat? I said, oh, I decided to stay home and watch the World Series. She leaned in my face and said, did the fucking World Series get you sober? And then she walked away. And I was like, wow, and these, these are serious people. I never heard that lady curse before that day. I never heard her curse after that. I think she disapproved of cursing. She just decided to make an exception for my benefit that day. But that was the way the message was delivered. And it was other ways. My brother took me to some of his meetings. There's a guy named Johnny B, uh, the white-haired guy. He talked like a Brillo pad, you know, ah, like that kind of shit. And uh, he's probably younger than I am now. But I sauntered up to him one night before a meeting, and uh, he said to me, how you doing, kid? So I said, well, to tell you the truth, I've been feeling a little depressed he said, I didn't ask you how you felt. I asked you how you were doing. I said, well, you crabby old bastard, you know? So then he sat me down and he said, look, kid, I'm not telling you your feelings aren't important. They are. I'm not telling you you shouldn't talk about your feelings. You should. What I'm trying to tell you is you need to learn how to step back from your feelings and say, okay, that's how I feel, but how am I actually doing? And when I did that that day, I said, I'm sober, I'm going to meetings, I got a sponsor, I got a home group, I got a service position, I got a job, I got a roof over my head, clean clothes on my back, food in my stomach, money in my pocket, a family that loves me, a higher power. And uh, I thought, wow, I'm doing great. I feel like crap, but I'm doing great. And there's just a huge lesson in that that I still apply when I have a serious mood swing. Sometimes there's this huge disconnect between how I feel about my life and how my life is actually going. And so I have used that over and over again in sobriety and shit. I don't know how many times I've told that story, but it's a, it's a hell of a lot of times. So anyway, uh, 
the point is I was also still living a double life. I was still living a lie. I still acted sexually with men on the side. Uh, at three years sober, I was in Albany, New York, and uh, I had double my earnings. I had a brand new house outside Albany and two kids and two, uh, two brand new cars. Um, I, had, uh, I was a vice president. I had 17 people working for me. Uh, I had color TVs and VCRs coming out my ass. I, uh, I, had, I was sponsoring half the city of Albany. I wasn't, uh, I was the GSR for my, the treasurer for my home group and uh, the treasurer for the Alcathon and uh, I was knee deep in AA and I got to my third anniversary with a wife and two kids in the audience and I wanted to drink. I wanted to drink so bad I could taste it. I had everybody singing my praises. I had everything I had chased and I wanted to drink and it was because I couldn't live the lie anymore. I had this sponsor Buckley for 13, 14 years, and he was very gentle, very slow. He said, it's time. And so that October, I went on the 12-step retreat. Uh, he sent me to, he had a family emergency the last minute. He canceled out. It's called a Matt Talbot retreat. And uh, I show up at this place in Wappinger Falls, New York. I'm from Albany, and you got 100 guys. These are cops and firemen and sanitation workers and construction workers. And uh, I have got this knot in my stomach when I got there. And, uh, the guy comes up to me Friday night and says, you speaking tonight? I said, do you even know who I am? He said, I don't care. Are you speaking or not? And I said, I guess I am. So I stand up in this room, and it's like back then you could have candlelight meetings. It's like a candlelight meeting. It's me and these all these blue collar guys. Uh, it's construction workers and everything. And he's standing up there, Chris McGuire, New York City cop. He said, if you came in here with a knot in your stomach, get rid of it. And he keeps pounding on the dais. If you came here with a knot in your stomach, get rid of it. And I don't know why, but he introduced me. And uh, I didn't just talk about being gay. I mean, I just let it out. I talked about orgies and bathhouses and pornography and prostitution. Uh, every, every, it was all just, I have no idea why it happened. It was just coming out. And, you know, sometimes when you speak at an audience, you can get a feel for whether the audience is with you or not. And there was like nothing coming back. You know, I'm talking and they're looking at me. And I start wondering when I stop talking, what the hell are they going to do? You know, and I stopped talking, I sat down and they just started applauding and clapping. And I went to that retreat every April and October for the next 20 years. I did a lot of step work there. I brought sponsees up there. I found a whole bunch of men who were really uh, much more open-minded than I wanted to give them credit for. And so many of the fears, I came back uh, from, from, at the end of that, I did my fourth and fifth step with that same guy who introduced me, Chris McGuire. And, uh, I dumped the big thing that held me back was a fifth step. I had six or seven things I was going to, you know, to, to hell with. I, I just was not going to tell anybody. And uh, I told them all to him. And they almost all involved some aspect of gay sex. And this is a New York City cop. And I dumped all this stuff. And he looked at me and he says, is that all you got? Big deal. You know, and he actually shared some personal things about his own fifth step before I opened my mouth, which really impressed me. But... Uh, he said, I want you to do two things uh, when you leave here. When I want you to go into chapel, and I want you to ask, as sincerely as possible, ask for forgiveness for anything you think you need forgiveness for from your higher power. And two, the most important part, 
He said, in a blind leap of faith, you need to accept that forgiveness. You can't keep claiming that you believe in God and a loving God and think that God is still punishing you. God wants you to get on with your life. The big book says God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We can't be that great a power of example if we're still looking over our shoulders at where we came from. And that was a huge thing for me, uh, forgiveness. Uh, that was what was holding me back. I thought I'd done some things I couldn't be forgiven for. I can't explain it now any better than I could then. But I made that leap, and I knew the slate had been wiped clean. The other thing he said to me, he says, don't start collecting new crap. You know what I mean? Try to deal with stuff as it comes up. Uh, I eventually got fired from a job in Albany. I moved back down to New York City. Uh, Kathy and I, when I came out to my wife after that retreat, Kathy and I agreed to stay in the marriage and raise the children, and we did that in Albany. I was not out at the meetings. I was out to my sponsees. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, I got fired. She wanted to stay in Albany. I moved back down to Jersey City. What uh, I didn't tell you is when I told her I was gay, we found out she was pregnant with Michael, who's now 36 and the father of my three grandchildren. She gave me, Michael then was like 12. She gave me custody of Michael. I raised Michael alone for a little while, and then Heather moved down, and Heather was a huge positive force for me. Uh, what I want to get to is... Uh, April 2nd, uh, January 2nd, 2014, uh, Heather lost a battle with bipolar disorder. I had to break into her apartment uh, and found her there. She had asphyxiated herself. I don't tell people she committed anything. Heather died of mental illness. She fought her. I did not retire to Florida because she got sick, and I, I wasn't going to leave her here. And uh, she was 36 years old, and she was my biggest supporter. She was so... When I came out as gay, she was the strongest one of them all. And she was by my side through all of that. And, uh, but I was just, I had a break in the apartment to find it there. And I was devastated. And uh, we were all devastated. And we just staggered and stumbled through it. I still don't know to this day exactly how I got through it. But this program wrapped itself around me. I went to any lengths. I got outside help. I joined some groups of Samaritans. There's a Facebook group for parents who lost a child to suicide. Uh, I went to Al-Anon. I, uh, uh, I actually saw a medium, and I people believe whatever they want, but I actually believe I was in direct contact with my daughter on three different occasions shortly after her death. Uh, and then the sponsees came out of the woodwork and I was living in Chelsea and I got taken to meetings and uh, taken to lunch and breakfast and uh, it almost got to be too much. Sometimes I'd go to meetings. A lot of people knew Heather. Heather came to me. Heather, Heather Sean and Michael all saw their father perform in drag at uh, the Ninth Avenue group and other places. Uh, they came to my anniversaries at an LGBT group at the end of the 90s, which was unheard of, that you had kids in the audience at an LGBT group. And so a lot of people knew Heather, and they were very, they'd come up to me before the meeting or after, and it was getting to be too emotional. And I started going to meetings two minutes late and leaving two minutes early because I just, I needed a meeting. And uh, it was just too emotional. But there's been a long, slow recovery. When I started out, I said, I'm part of an alcoholic, it's good to be sober. I started saying that at 10 years sober because it was a breakthrough when I went through the second the steps a second time. Uh, 
I had still had this idea I was being punished for screwing up my drinking. And when I went through the steps, I thought, you know, being sober is in of itself a good thing as a standalone. But when Heather died, to be honest, I stopped saying that for a while because I just didn't feel it. I was just, I think I, when Heather died, I just didn't feel it. But I say it now. I've come back and uh, I'm able to laugh again. And I talk about her and I encourage people to talk about her. We're not, she's not going to become a family secret. We, we all agreed on that and her brothers are the same way. Uh, we still talk a lot about Heather and we laugh how powerful she was and forceful she could be. But this program has carried me through that. And you know what I mean? I don't, uh, I don't presume to say I've had the worst of it or the best of it. Uh, it's just incredible that I would even think of saying this that for the one point I was at, but I am grateful for my life. I'm grateful to be sober. Uh, I don't understand. I don't think we're designed to understand some of the shit that goes down in this world, but uh, I accept, I accept it. I, I really believe in people. I believe that God is in people. And uh, that's what Buckley, that's why I was at for 13 years, he used to tell me, stop looking up there for God. He's in all these people all around you. Some people, he's a lot harder to find, but uh, they're still there somewhere, buried sometimes, but they're still there. And I was one of them probably for a while. But I have three beautiful grandchildren that I'm going to see again in October. I actually, I said very quickly, found out two of my three grandchildren, I used to say granddaughters. I say grandchildren now because two of them uh, are saying, is indicating that transgender uh, Sable is 11. And uh, at five, she was insisting, she, Sable was insisting, I'm a boy. And now uh, the oldest 14 jet is, uh, going to a school, especially for transgender children. But that's a whole other thing. My son, Michael, is sober coming on 11 years, and he, I, this is the one thing I know, he knows, whatever our differences would be, he knows I'm standing right behind him, that those kids are going to have love and support, and they're going to, and Michael is like me. When it comes to his kids, he gets fucking primal really easily. And no, he's not going to take any shit from anybody. So I'm not saying those kids aren't going to have some tough rows. Of course they are. But they're going to know their family loves them and accepts them precisely and exactly the way they are. And I attribute that to AA too. Anyway, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome, Pat. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, if I did my calculations correctly, you just hit 40 years of sobriety. And I... I, I think that you're just scratching the surface um, with with what you told us, <laughs> and um, you know, just just seeing you again is is just a joy. Um, you know, I started my sober journey ten years ago, and one thing that I really identified with what you were saying is there's a difference between stopping drinking and getting sober and staying stopped. You know, and that was the struggle that I had. I could not stay stopped. I couldn't get sober. And there was a whole list of reasons why. Some of them were excuses, but the main one is I wasn't ready. I wasn't willing. I wasn't able to take that step to surrender. Um, and I'll actually be coming up um, on my one year in six days. Um, Ben's going to be 
coming up with his one year in seven days. Um, so, you know, it's it's been a real journey for us. So, um, you know, one thing that I was listening for, and, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, is over the last 40 years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes within the program. Um, but, you know, how has Alcoholics Anonymous, how has recovery changed from the time that you got sober to today? Oh, it's enormous. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I used to be very dogmatic myself about what AA is and what isn't. You know, uh, one of the things when I looked at the people that I admire the most, the old timers, the one thing I noticed about them is as they stayed sober, they became less dogmatic. They became gentler, less judgmental, more loving, more accepting. And the Bill W. used to always talk about we either become leading deacons or elder statesmen. And I didn't want to be, and I saw people who I thought like leading deacons bewailing and bemoaning the fate of AA. And uh, I didn't want to become one of those. You know, it's not, it's not, it's a program of attraction. Uh, how attractive is it to be so rigid and uh, judgmental? So over time, I've come to see the genius. Uh, this is where it comes from. A lot of that stuff that the old timers came from was not out of malice. It, it was out of fear. They genuinely feared for AA. They thought that AA was a lot more fragile than it actually is. To me, one of the things I appreciate about AA that I don't think a lot of people realize is how vital the fourth tradition is, that every group is autonomous. You can, and it says right in the first paragraph of the four traditions, they're free to do exactly as they please so long as it doesn't affect other groups or AA as a whole. And that's what's allowed for special interest groups. I mean, the fourth tradition allowed that it started with men's meetings. You're not supposed to exclude any alcoholics, but you can have a men's meeting. If a woman shows up, you're supposed to let them in. Uh, same thing, you had women's meetings, then you had foreign language meetings, you had uh, dual diagnosis meetings, you had LGBT meetings. All those things come out of the fourth tradition. But even if, if like, you got regular AA meetings where some people, there was a group in Albany, alcohol only group, so you were not allowed to talk about any drug other than alcohol, you know, and they cut you off at the past. They're not violating the traditions. They are just as. The, the autonomy that uh, protects the LGBT group and the women's meetings protects that group too. It's a package deal. And, you know, I used to wail and get pissed off about some of how conservative and rigid some of these AA groups were. And then finally I had like a spiritual awakening and it dawned on me, you know, if those people didn't have those meetings to go to, some of those fuckers would start showing up at my meetings. So I said, more power to you. Start a few more while you're at it, but leave my meetings alone. You know what I mean? So uh, that's where it's come to. But you gotta, you gotta, when you're in New York at AA, it can fool you. You think it's really like that all over the country. It's not, clearly it's not. There's, you can get a very different taste of AA in different places. Uh, thanks for, uh, you know, sharing, um, not just sharing about your story. Thank you for sharing about Heather um, and your experience, strength and hope. And I love sitting back and hearing people with extended period of time. And I just get so much out of it and learn, learn a lot. I, I especially love how 
Uh, I think you said at your time, his name was Chris McGuire. He said, is that all you got? I mean, that was one of my favorite lines. I mean, that just shows that there's no, there's no judgment and, you know, you really need your, it's, it's about acceptance and forgiveness. And like you said, be happy, joyous and free, right. At the end of the day. Um, I, I think my question is if you can go back, so he just said, uh, Jason just mentioned you're 40 years sober. If you can go back to your, let's just say early recovery, maybe your first year, what would you tell yourself to, uh, help out or what would you tell that person? I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you. The first year was such a blur, you know, um, I would, I would tell myself to try to, to lighten up, to try to lighten up, to not take myself so seriously. I, I looked at my life and how screwed up it was. And I said, I got to straighten this all out. And I was swinging away at things and getting so frustrated, you know, and uh, uh, rule 62 in the fourth tradition is don't take yourself so damn seriously. And uh, I was trying to straighten out everything at once. And uh, it just led to a lot of frustration and anger. And uh, I've second guessed myself on when I should have come out sooner or not. But, you know, it happened when it happened. The kids are fine. I came out to the kids. When I came out to the kids, they were all grown. Sean was the funniest. I, I came out to him. He was in the Navy when I was doing this. So. I didn't want to do it on the phone or in the letter. So I waited till he came home and he's my oldest son. So I was, I don't know why I was so nervous and shit, but I was stuttering and stammering and with him. And then finally I said, Sean, the truth is I'm gay. And uh, he rolled his eyes to the back of his head and he said, Jesus Christ, dad, I thought you had cancer. You scared the shit out of me. You know? So he said, he said, he said, Dad, I'm in the Navy. I've heard about these things, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's the same thing about the secrets and everything. My brother Jimmy, when I was, or he knew I was keeping secrets, and he kept telling me, if it has a name, that means somebody else already did it. And Patty, they not only did it, they probably did it better than you and more often than you, so get over yourself, you know? So, Pat, you are by far my favorite guest. This has been unbelievable to listen to you speak and share your story. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned early on in your recovery was, you know, the meetings and obviously the meetings have changed, uh, you know, what they look like for you, but you know, what was it like for you during COVID with this whole transition to zoom and now, you know, things are opening back up in hybrid meetings, you know, what does your uh, program look like? It's merging back now. I'm starting to look at, uh, um, Red Door is opening up, uh, Chelsea Mornings. There's a bunch of groups in Manhattan that are starting to open up slowly. So I'm kind of like uh, both ends of them now. We have a really nice outdoor meeting at Chelsea Piers every seven days a week, and that's weather permitting. But uh, uh, I thank God for, uh, for Zoom. We've, we're reaching people we never would have reached now. There's people that are shut-ins, there's people who live in remote areas, there's people in, in nursing homes and hospitals. And, you know, we need to try and maintain some strong Zoom presence and not just shut this whole thing back down because there's a whole bunch of people we're actually reaching now that we probably weren't reaching before. And we couldn't have done this 10 years ago. So it's an absolute blessing for reaching the sick and suffering. That's awesome. So, um, you know, we really focus our 
uh, podcasts around early recovery and people in their first year or so of, of sobriety, if there was one piece of advice that you could give the newcomer, what would it be? There's a guy named Sam T in Albany. And I came out of this beginner's meeting. I ran out of this beginner's meeting. This woman pissed me off so much at this meeting of this shit she was running. Some, she only had 90 days sober. I had two years sober. And at the time, the truth was, in hindsight, she was more sober than I was because I was enraged about some stupid shit she said. So I come out onto uh, Central Avenue in Albany here. And I'm pissed, and now I feel I'm, I'm going to have to go to a second meeting just to get unscrewed from what happened at the first one. Is that old saying, anyone who tells you there's no such thing as a bad AA meeting isn't going to enough meetings? Because if you were going to enough meetings, you'd never say anything that dumb. I probably ran out of five meetings in 40 years. Uh, so I'm standing out there, and I'm pissed, and here comes Sam T. Sam T is an icon in Albany. Sam T. I doubt he's got a high school education. But Sam T's happy. He's always happy. He's, he's just spiritual and loving and gentle. You could watch in the meetings when Sam T got called on. He had this quiet voice. And you see everybody just kind of hunch forward to listen to Sam T. And so I said, oh, great. I'm off the hook. I can talk to Sam T. I'll tell him how this woman's screwing up AA. And he'll agree with me and I'll feel better. And... Uh, I started to unload on him, and he listened to me for a good 30 seconds. And then he did this. He put his hand up. He said, you know, it took me eight years. I said, it took you eight years? He said, yeah. I said, it took me it took you eight years to do what? He said, it took me eight years to figure out the key. I said, it took you eight years to figure out the key to what? He said, it took me eight years to figure out the key to sobriety. I said, Sam, he said, yeah. I said, what's the friggin' key to sobriety? And he leaned in my face with his finger and he said, don't drink. I said, that's it? Don't drink? He said, yeah, you want me to say it again? Don't drink. I said, you mean don't drink and go to meetings, right? He said, don't screw with it. I didn't say that. If you go to meetings, don't drink. If you don't go to meetings, don't drink. If you get a home group, don't drink. If you don't get a home group, don't drink. If you get a sponsor, don't drink. If you don't, I said, I got you, Sam. I'm with you. He said, now, if you're willing to do all that other stuff, like home group, sponsorship, meetings, step work, all that, you'll probably find that it's a hell of a lot easier to do. But the absolute key to the whole thing is whether you do or you don't do any of that other stuff, don't drink. And that's what I thought about. That was Sam T. I used to hate people like that. You know, I could just work up such a lather and complicate my goddamn life and some smart ass comes along with some shit like that. Uh, but how true. <laughs> Absolutely true. Oh, my God. Don't drink. I think that's excellent advice. Well, Pat, thank you so much for your time tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your life with us. Thank you. Have a good night. Yes, have a great night, Pat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. But hands down, the best guest we've ever had. I'm sure we only have 19 episodes and like only seven guests, but whatever. No, I agree. I could I could have listened to him 
for 40 minutes an hour. He's an hour-long guy. And he's one of those guys, yeah, that he could have talked for an hour. Right. Um, J- Jason's definitely texting him, thank you for coming on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he's definitely an hour guy. Where, like, and you could tell, like, yeah, and especially with the dates and, like, just how, like, how, like, he had everything just locked. And then, like, he's like, all right, I got five minutes. And he's like, all right. And, like, he just had points that he knew he wanted to hit. And they were yeah. all, like, oh, boy. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there's two things that I love, too. And I even wanted to bring it up, but I really didn't want it. It's one of those guys that you just don't want to talk. You just want yep. to listen. Yep. Right? But, uh. I love how someone told him, did the effing World Series get you sober? Yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. But on a deeper level, I really like how he said, you know, how are you doing versus how are you doing? And, you know, he obviously said it better, but I'm, you know, I might not be in a great mood, but I am doing well today. Right. And, you know, yep. that just goes along with all the programs we are currently working on one day at a time is everything okay today, right? Because we all have a roof over our heads currently. We all have a meal to eat. So, you know, we're doing well right now. Right. You know, he was absolutely, he was a guy that I, like, I, there was just point after point after point that I was just like, oh my God, I feel that way. I feel that way. I feel that way. And I, and I was like, I'm not even going to come close to saying, yeah, I know what you mean. Because it literally felt like he would have just patted me on the head and said, good good job keep going like it was like i like i just want to listen to you all day i don't want to compare myself because to hear the things that he went through like to be gay and in the marines in the 60s to lose his daughter like that like and like i mean that is just that for me is the kind of it's one of those people that you come across you know if you're around these rooms at, that you hear something and you go, you didn't drink over that. And then when it's just a little piece that I'm going to take with me and when, you know, things are bad and I'm, you know, thankfully I haven't been to that point yet, you know, where I'm like, Oh God, I wish I could just drink over this. But I think it's just hearing stuff like that. It's like, it's just perspective. Like I listen, my, my problems are not nearly close enough to, to, to that. So if, if, if somebody can go through an experience like that and not drink, I can certainly deal with this and not drink. Absolutely. And the thing that kept resonating with me and, you know, I've heard Pat speak before. He is a friend of mine. But what just kept showing up for me was that this is the program alive. This is what recovery looks like when you are living recovery in every aspect of your life. And it doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter what feelings you have. If you are living recovery, that's what shows up. And the amount of service that he does, the amount of joy that he has, the amount of knowledge he brings about just life in general. I mean, he's such an amazing person. It, it's truly an honor to to call him a friend. And, <laughs> you know, I, 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 this, he was in rare, rare form tonight. You know, he, he just knows how to bring that brevity to recovery, you know, I, and, and I think he mentioned that where he said the, the old timers, which, you know, I don't know if he identifies as an old timer or not, but with 40 years, I'm going to call him one. And, you yeah, know, I, th- I think he qualifies. I think so too. I think so too. 
but you know the the brevity and the lightness and the fact that this isn't a death sentence there's so much more that we can do in life now that we're sober and we right. can remember the things that we do in life now that we're sober yeah and no, he think, just lives it yeah i think i think he does i think he subtly uh you know classified himself as a an old timer if you want to say that when you know he said that one of the things he admired about the old timers when he came in was that they were they were gentle and they were more understanding and more compassionate and you know hearing him you know i can see how he is a you know a gentle compassionate listen he'll he he absolutely i feel like would tell you you know set you straight that that is new york city recovery right there they don't no bullshit like you know and just so matter of fact like like all i can't wait to listen back to it all the comments just like so like it was just one of my favorite episodes yet and yeah i think it's you know if if we, we get there like i hope i'm i hope i'm as gentle yet as i hope i had have an impact on somebody like he had on me tonight yeah, I think we just have to reiterate Sam T's uh, comment. Just don't drink. Just don't drink. Don't drink. Absolutely. Don't drink. Well, excellent episode. I'm going to make sure that I touch base with him tomorrow and thank him again for coming on. And as always, tonight's episode is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a good night, guys. Have a good night. Have a good night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.